0: travelers and welcome back to biblical time machine i am one of your hosts dave roos i am here with helen bond professor of christian origins at the university of edinburgh um, helen you've got a couple kids don't you
1: i do i do although one of them is hardly a kid anymore she's 19 so i'm not sure she still counts well, although maybe it. they're always my babies aren't they <laughs> always <laughs> And you've got three. You got three. Yeah, I got
0: you? three. It's insane. Oh, insane dear. to have yeah. three as opposed to two.
1: <laughs> You're outnumbered.
0: Like, you know, I, I, I know how we raised our children. I'm expecting you had a similar experience. Like, our, our children had the cushiest, easiest, you know, most, Still do. S- you know, weighted upon childhood that oh, any yeah. child has oh, ever yeah. had.
1: Definitely. I am just the maid, you know, I'm the servant to everybody. I I know my place in the house.
0: <laughs> so today we're talking about the, the polar opposite, you know, what childhood was like um, in the ancient world. And, and you know, when you read the Bible, you're like, you don't see a lot of kids, right? Mm. They don't come up very often. So the, the Bible itself is not really cluing us in about what life was like. But thankfully, through things like archaeology and ethnography, which is, you know, studying sort of other traditional cultures that in that part of the world that probably operated the same a couple thousand years ago. You know, we can get an idea of what that looks like. So that's what we're talking about today with our guest Christine Garraway. Christine is, is a professor of Bible at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion. That's in Los Angeles. And uh, she wrote a great book. It's an award-winning book. Called growing up in ancient israel children in material culture and biblical texts and i want to mention that that book growing up in ancient israel was published by sbl press and sbl press are the same people behind uh bible odyssey our little partner website right
1: and when we talk about childhood, of course, we're not talking... I mean, nowadays, childhood goes on for, I don't know, when does childhood finished? 30? Yeah. <laughs> when are we no longer responsible for them? <laughs> this but is an actual in...
0: question. I want to know. When <laughs> exactly. are we no longer responsible?
1: <laughs> but I mean, at, at a sort of a... A minimum. We, we take childhood to go on till 16, 18, something mm. like that. But, um, I mean, in, in, in ancient Israel, we are talking up to about basically puberty, isn't it? So, mm. I mean, by 12, a girl is, is ready to get married and a boy is considered a man at, at that age. Mm. So it's a, it's a much more condensed time, I suppose. So, I mean, we're talking about, about small people up to the age of 12 or so today
0: yeah and as we discussed with christine you know the odds sadly the odds of a child making it to 12 were vanishingly uh slim so that's that's a big part of it but yeah for now let's let's get to our conversation with christine about childhood in ancient israel Well, hello christine garraway and welcome to biblical time machine
2: thank you delighted to be here
0: i was trying to think when we're talking about childhood in the ancient world you know t- childhood in the biblical sort of biblical times like who are the kids that show up in the hebrew bible i i i mean I, there's like talk about births and babies but like do we see these kids in their childhood? So are there are there children in childhood in, in the Hebrew Bible?
2: Well, that's a valid question because the biblical text doesn't really mention a ton of children. Um, they no. don't jump to mind. They are there. Uh, we can think of, you know, baby Moses on the yes. Nile River or um, young David, uh, who's probably a, a teenager when he fights Goliath. Um but there's not not a ton of children that, that jump out. The ones that uh, we do know are, are definitely children, um, as in young children, um, die. <laughs> there's a lot of children who, for uh, whatever reason, to maybe support the biblical uh, I- ideological narrative, um, uh, like the child who... Well, two children, both um, Elijah and Alicia, wind up reviving children who are presumably Mm. dead. Mm. Um, But we don't know a lot about their lives. They're just kind of there as, as placeholders in the narrative.
0: Yeah. So what what does that what does that tell us, do you think, about, you know, that there are so few children in the Bible? I mean, obviously, there were a lot of children around, but why do we think they're not making it into a text like this?
2: Well, I think the reason it's not interested in children's young lives, like when they're when they're young, um has to do with the agenda of the Bible, which is not to talk about household and family and domestic measures um per se. Uh, like you mentioned, we do have a lot of births, and that was super important. So we do know that the text is interested in populating the larger storyline with the people that it needs to to appear um but i mean we do see we do see children i want to be clear about that it's just not whole narratives about children's lives in the same way that we get whole narratives about um grown-ups was there such a thing as childhood
1: in the ancient world? I mean, you get the impression that that's maybe a, a more modern sort of concept. I mean, was there a, a sort of a, a set idea that, you know, this is this is a, a special time for a, a little person?
2: Yeah, I would say that childhood in the way that we think about childhood today, you know, um, where children are encouraged to play and explore and uh, not put to work, um, it, go to school, get educated. Um, that That's not the same sort of childhood that existed in the ancient world, which isn't to say that there was a, a period of time where children weren't children. It's just a period of time where children, um, well, because the, the structure of the ancient family and the the family household was different, that it was, um, you know, everybody had to work together to make the household uh, succeed. So children would be given jobs early on. Um, and, uh, like we might call them chores today, which would be, you know, like you get a sticker on a sticker chart if you do a chore, but in the <laughs> biblical world, if you didn't, you know, gather sticks for the fire. You're not going to have a fire if you don't, you know, go out and pick vegetables. You're not going to have food for the evening. Um, So there is, I think, a greater weight placed on the economic uh, contributions that children could have um, than we tend to think about today, Um, especially uh, younger children. Um, I read a lot of ethnographic literature that talk about, societies that are similar to the structure we have in the biblical world and it's talking about children who are running errands um you know taking the donkey 13 miles to go to the nearest town to pick up something and i think about my own child i'm like i could barely you know get him to (laughs) take the garbage out and come back without wandering off so i think there's just a different um Way that life existed in the ancient world, uh, which is not necessarily carefree and happy playtime for a childhood
0: well, yeah, let's you mentioned you know households, and i i'm I'm kind of fascinated by the idea of trying to picture, you know what what would a household look like in the iron age, you know if if we're in the land that we you know call Israel today, that 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 part of the world, the ancient Near East. Was yeah? Can you, what do we know from archaeology and and like ethnography, like you said, about what what a household looked like? It wasn't probably just one little nuclear family in in a in a little house, right? It, it, more like a compound. What what do we think?
2: Yeah, we're we're talking um, multi generational households. Um, this, you know, kind of the way we think of a household today, as you said, like a nuclear family. That probably would have existed more in cities. But when we're talking about villages and um, semi-nomadic or farmers or or that kind of thing, you would have your extended family living with you. the biblical text gives it a specific term. It calls it the Beit Av, the house of the father. Um, And you would be living with uh, not only your siblings and your parents, but probably close by, you would have uh, grandparents, aunts and uncles, cousins, um all working the same farmland or you know having the same herd of animals um so really a a multi-generational i guess compound is is the way to put it
0: compound (laughs) Um, has like a negative
1: (laughs) Mm, a good compound so just just i mean just just Having children and I mean it was it was pretty much a miracle, wasn't it that anyone survived in the ancient world i mean wasn't wasn't infant mortality desperately
2: high? yes, um, the infant mortality rate is estimated uh, for those of you who like statistics to be fifty percent within mm-hmm. the first year of life, oh. and then after that, wow. so those who survived the first year of life. Um, it's estimated another 50% uh, would not have made it to the age of 15, which means that if you were a woman, you would be spending most of your adult life pregnant so that you could make sure that you had enough live births that then uh, you you had children who were able to mature and become adults. Um so I, I think the estimate is somewhere like um having six children to, to successfully reproduce two human adults. Um I mean it's just, you know, staggering the way that just these perils in the ancient world uh were a part of daily life. Do you think that made
1: any difference to the way that people bonded with their children? I mean, presumably they love them just as they love them today. but it must it must have been strange thinking, you know there's a good chance that that this child won't won't survive. yeah,
2: that's a good question. Um, there's been It's actually a contentious issue, I would say, because there's mm. been ethnographic studies that um a very famous one took place in in South America where the ethnographer went in and she was like torn apart because this child died and she was sobbing and she's like, I'm so sorry, I couldn't help. And the women of the village looked at her and was like, why is this lady so upset? <laughs> like, like, like it was nothing. And so sometimes people say, well, you know, in the ancient world, it was just whatever, um, you know, someone died, all right, we'll try again. But it's my sneaking suspicion that that isn't true. I think they did care very much for their children and I think they did value their children. And I think the way at least that I'm reaching this conclusion is by looking at all of the various um, like lullaby slash incantations we have that uh, try and protect the children. There's amulets that try and protect children. There are uh, various Things you can place in the household to protect children. So there were all these measures taken to try and protect the children, which to me indicates uh, that there there was a desire to protect the children. And I don't think it's just because the woman didn't want to, you know, have to go through another pregnancy. But, but I think there was a real <laughs> desire for those children um, that we see within the text because they were valuable.
0: Yeah, I was gonna ask you about that. I, I know that. Like we just talked about in, in the Bible, there's not a lot of talk of, of, of childhood, but there's a lot of talk and a lot of, you know, anxieties over over having children. And am I going to be able to have children? Um, and then it sounds like in the archaeological record, too, there's there's evidence, right, of, of this sort of parental anxiety over losing, a, you know, possibly losing a child. Or like you said, these kind of what's that word? apotropaic, I never get it right. What's that, those amulets?
2: (laughs) Apotropaic.
0: Oh, I see, I was close.
2: (laughs) So, yeah, the biblical text, yeah, it does, again, hint at, I think, things we see in the archaeological record, which is why I think it's so important to bring the archaeological record uh, to the table when we're talking about the biblical text, because, uh, you know, there's so many lacunae, uh, things that are skipped over in the Bible that you can fill in um, or at least suggest to fill in <laughs> through archaeological data. So um, yeah, we see a great desire for, uh, especially it's called like the barren woman uh, motif, where are the matriarchs like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. Um, and then later on, we have the wife of Manoah, who becomes Samson's mom. We have Hannah, who is Samuel's mom, um, they all can't have children at first. And they're, they go through great lengths, uh, in order to try and have children. Um, and I think it's also important to to note that in the, the biblical and ancient world, the divine was understood as the one who opened the womb so that a woman's Mm -hmm. womb was closed by default And it was only through, like, it really was understood as a miracle of birth that the divine chose to open a woman's womb and let her become pregnant. Um, So prayers were very important, um, you know, beseeching the divine. But then there's all sorts of interesting other ways we see that women um, try and help things along. I mean, I guess, you know, similar to when people today get frustrated with prayers not being answered, uh, you might try a different route. Um, We see the story in the book of Genesis uh, where Rachel can't have children and she cries out in chapter 30, give me children or I will die. Like she desperately wants children. And then later on, her solution to this is to try... Um, mandrakes. Now, why mandrakes? You might be asking. Uh, well, if you <laughs> have seen a mandrake, or I guess probably in popular culture, the thing that's most familiar is like the Harry Potter scene where they pick up the mandrake and like the mandrake screams, it looks like a little person, and they got to put it back in the pot. Um, mandrakes look like little people. So if you think of a ginger root, a mandrake is similar. And so the idea is, you know, something like if you either ingest the little person, then you'll have a little person in you, or maybe you sleep with it or steep it in tea or something. So um, we see this, uh, you know, sort of thing happening with Rachel. And uh, in Israel, they did um, tests recently on the mandrake root and found trace amounts of human growth hormone, which means that maybe there is something (laughs) who knows um but i guess the flip side to all of that then
1: is that if you don't conceive then it's it's sort of put into this whole religious realm isn't it god has not done it for you and then and then that's sort of doubly bad i guess that's partly why barrenness is seen as being such mm -hmm. a shameful horrible thing
2: yeah yeah almost like um, a social pariah cast out like not even you know, the divine beings or God is, is interested in you reproducing.
0: Um, well, I, I want to go back. Okay. I want to go back to this, this household, this, this, this compound as we're calling it. So let's, let's picture children in there. Let's picture what, what are the expectations? Like you said, we, we hardly expect our children to do anything. And the few things that we do expect them to do, they mess it up and we have to do it anyway. <laughs> so what were the ancient <laughs> expectations and 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 I know you write about this, like uh they were they were pretty different for little girls and little boys, right? They were pretty kind of gendered uh expectations of what these kids were up to in the in and around the household. So kinda of walk us through the the chores maybe that would have been expected of of like little kids, maybe talk about how young we think kids were doing stuff.
2: Sure. Um so let's paint a picture of what this house actually looked like because i think that will help in uh understanding why children were asked to do the things they were asked so if we envision um a house that has four we'll go with the typical four room israelite house um we have an area for animals in the house you have a courtyard area where you'd have your outdoor um oven or your outdoor um hearth. Um, you have an area in the back where you would have maybe food preparation or if you had um, textiles or a loom that was being worked on or pottery. And then you would have, mo- we think that m- many of the houses had an upper story uh, where you would probably sleep during the hotter times of year. So you have this house and then around the house was probably um it could have been walled, uh, in, um, and you would have, um, a little garden, maybe a vineyard, some, uh, things close by. You would probably have some animals close by as in, um, a calf. Maybe if you had some cows in the house, why would you have cows in the house? You ask, um, for two reasons. One, um, how do you start a fire? You need fuel. And dung is a really great source of fuel. So that would have been something children could have done is to collect fuel for the fire. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> There's all sorts of uh, sensory studies that have been done about the biblical world, too, and how it smells. Um, that's not my area, but people talk about it. Um, <laughs> so we uh, and. So. Collecting fuel for the fire would have been um, something. Oh, the other reason you... I said two things. The other reason you would have a cow in your house is, is for sacrifice. Because cows... Uh, Jeremiah talks about having a, a stall-fed calf or a fatty calf. Um, and this would be really great for sacrifice because it wouldn't be lean and stringy like animals that are running around uh, and grazing. Mm. Um, so you'd have to tend for the animals. Um, you would also... Uh, Children who were younger and staying within the house um, probably, again, helped with the garden, uh, helped with um, you could help with textiles. If we're talking about how textiles are made, Um, you have sheep shearing that needs to happen. You have then the wool that comes off. There's two types of wool you have to separate the coarse wool from the nice soft fluffy wool you have to beat it you have to clean it you have to wash it you have to if you're dyeing it you got to dye it so there's all sorts of different steps that children could have helped with now the, the biblical text doesn't mention any of these but um if we look at comparable uh societies today we do see children helping with these and it's not unreasonable to think that children would have helped um, what we We do know about, as far as you you were asking, uh, gendered tasks or chores. um, We see that, you know, around an age, so really young children are probably just trying to survive, but around the age when you can toddle around, you're probably given chores that um, are easy to do. Like we might think of giving our own um, toddlers um, but as children got older, they would be separated. So the girls would go with the moms and the or or the women of of the house, and the boys would go off uh, into the fields uh, to help the men. And so uh, the separation of genders wasn't because they didn't necessarily want the genders to mix. Um, it was so that they would grow up and learn the particular tasks and uh chores needed to needed to um, help the household survive so for girls that would mean learning how to do food preparation learning how to prepare and bake bread um this was a like all-day task to to make bread you'd make it fresh every day you got to grind it you got to um that would take a long time you have to separate the um losing my words, the husk and the hull, um, and all that stuff, and then make bread. So, um, that could take up to six hours a day. Clearly more hands make work light. Um, and so little girls would learn how to do basic food preparation. Um, boys would be out in the field learning whatever needed to be done for animal husbandry. Um, so those would be basic, um, differences between what uh, girls and boys could do. Uh, now, we know there were some times when older children, if we think of um, how in the Bible, uh, Jacob met Rachel, she was out watering the flocks. Uh, if we think of how Moses met his wife, Zipporah, um, she was out with her sisters uh, watering the flocks. So we do know that girls and boys um, would participate with uh, animal needs.
0: And apparently um, that's where that's where you met your your girlfriend too. It was just like that was yeah. the, kind of the single scene was the flock watering. It's yeah. a different Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's
1: cool. That's, that's good well. to know. Yeah it's good yeah. to know. <laughs> so have you found any and have archaeologists found any any objects that 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 children had, you know either either to help them with the adults or 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 even toys games, that kind of thing, little dolls or or little bows and arrows or anything like that.
2: yeah, um, I would say yes, they have, and there's a bunch of people who would say no, they haven't. And this is <laughs> because if you were to look at an object, how do you know who used it? Um there have uh, been objects that are found that look like um, miniature, I don't know, like they're called Judean pillar figurines. They look kind of like a Barbie doll as far as height goes, but they have a, a solid base to them. Um, and uh, they're a female figurine. And when For example, these are talked about, people think of them as either goddesses or maybe used for magical purposes to ward off evil. But what about a secondary use? Like what happens if they get broken and fall on the floor? Because most of them that we find are broken. Could you imagine a child picking it up and playing with it or imitating a parent uh, that they see using it? Does that mean it's a child's toy? Does that mean it's not a child's toy? If you hmm. think about um, uh, other little figurines we find that are like uh, horse and rider figurines, um, we're not exactly sure what they were used for, but maybe they were the image of one of the male deities. Um, but again, who's to say a, a child didn't use it after it, it um, had its initial function? Um, so there are objects which could go any which way. Um, and the, the joke is always when you find something in the archeological record and you don't know what it is, you assign it to one of two things. It's either a ritual object or a child's toy. (laughs) Meaning.
0: Or, or both.
2: Yeah. Like whatever. (laughs) But there, there is, uh, or there are a couple of things that, I think make a lot of sense to think about children playing with and which I have actually argued were specifically made by children and they look like little um, buttons so if you think of a clay disc with two holes poked in it like a button um, these are found like all over in excavations and when they were first found the excavator said, oh, this looks like a toy I used to play with as a child, where you would string um, a string <laughs> through the two loops and tie the string so you have a big loop. And then uh, imagine holding each end of the string with the little button thing in the middle and winding it up like a jump rope, winding it around and around and around and then pulling it taut. And then the the uh, clay disc would zoom back and forth. And so... Um, mm-hmm. The name given to that was Buzz, B-U-Z-Z. But then later, people came along and said, no, 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 you're just um, projecting what you remember about your past onto this object. It couldn't possibly be this. It probably had some other meaning. Well, I happen to agree with the first excavator who thought these were a buzz. Um, I think these probably were children's toys. We do see... uh, sorts of like spinning tops um, in the ancient record. Um, And and I think there are other ways we can um, see children maybe even crafting these items. So there's some items that these buzzes which work perfectly. Um, I actually did an experiment with some fifth graders, uh, having them try and reconstruct these things. Which they loved because they got to break flower pots so that they had a piece of pottery to work with, and then, uh, and then they had to try and drill holes and then, um, and see if they could reproduce such things. So, um, through that sort of hands-on um, experiment, um, experimental archaeology is what it's called. Uh, I was able to see how children would look at something and then try and recreate it themselves. And the sort of Mm. errors that you see children making as far as skill wise and craft wise, we also see on objects, these buzzes from the ancient world. So there's some that are crafted like very badly that would never have worked. And the same sort of errors they were making or the same sort of errors uh, that I saw the children making. So it's my sneaking suspicion uh, here's the upshot that children were making and producing toys, but that we don't always recognize them because they're not super obvious. They don't look like, you know, transformers or matchbox cars or whatever we're familiar with.
0: Oh, that's cool. That's cool. I, I mean, something that we come back to again, again on the podcast is just how humans have been humans forever. And and so kids have been kids forever. And obviously you know, we, they expected more out of their children in terms of chores around the house, but like, of course they were playing and of course they were taking little broken things and making them into, into toys. So it makes, makes perfect sense to me. I'm on your team. I'm on team, team toy. <laughs> um, but if we're talking about, you know, comparing life now to life back then, we expect our children of a certain age and sometimes earlier and earlier to go to some kind of school. We expect them to leave the house have some kind of education was there anything remotely like school um for I mean uh, yeah I I guess I I think I know the answer but (laughs) (laughs) certainly for our villagers out you know out in in uh, these nomadic villagers was there anything like school and or what were they learning kind of in the home was there more uh uh uh, what's the word uh on you know an unstructured learning process going on with the with the family
2: yeah um only the, well, as far as we, we think, only those who were rather well off or maybe lived near a city or had a parent who was themselves a scribe or you know, knew how to read and write would have gone to any sort of school where you'd learn anything familiar or a structure to, to what we're familiar with today. Um, so the answer is that no, most people didn't go to school. Yes, there were probably some sort of scribal schools, but very select group going there. Um, instead, I think we see education happening um, just by experience and life. Uh, so those, um, I forget what they call it today, not free range children, but uh, the the sort of idea <laughs> that you learn just what you need for life based on you know unstructured uh
0: no they, they do call them free-range they call it free-range okay. uh children yeah no it's okay,
1: that's, that's it. <laughs> okay. really that's a great it's <laughs> <like the eggs. laughs> no, just
0: like the eggs just like the eggs <laughs>
2: um so you would have uh i think parents would have had things they wanted children to learn but it wasn't necessarily you know your reading writing and arithmetic it would have been How do you properly offer a sacrifice? How do you properly pray to the gods? What time of day do you need to do these things? Uh, How do you make the special bread that you give uh, at this particular time of year? Um, How do you, uh, you know, so there would have been some sort of, for lack of a better word, religious um, upbringing, I guess. Um, I don't think they thought of what they were doing as religion in the same way that we think of religion, but it's a helpful term for modern conception. And then I think uh, we should understand those chores or tasks as also learning different things as as their schooling, learning, you know, did you, Bring the proper size sticks. Did you bring sticks that were wet and green, so they're not going to make a fire? Well, that's a learning curve, right? You need to to learn how to build a fire because that's a practical skill. <laughs> so things that uh, were practical and that you would need for every day are the sorts of things that um, I think were actively being taught. Um, and the the other um, thing we should think about is. Uh, Parents passing down their own culture to their children. And the fancy word for that is enculturation. Um, Clearly, parents, and we see this even in the biblical text, what might be the Bible's agenda, had a vested interest in making sure that their children grew up to reproduce their own culture. Um, The biblical text is rife with, uh, you know, don't intermarry. You can only marry these specific people. And so these sorts of attitudes and the sorts of beliefs that parents had would be passed down to to their children. Um, And we see this uh, maybe most specifically in the book of Deuteronomy, where it it instructs parents to teach these things to your children in the book of, um, and these things being all of the laws and instructions that were given um, by God to the Israelites.
1: So what, what if somebody didn't have children because, you know, either because of barrenness or because they'd had several children who just died? Um, is, there, is there evidence of, of people adopting? Is there anything in the, in the biblical record about how you go on about that?
2: Well, there's hints in the biblical text about adoption. But we know that adoption was happening um, in the ancient world broadly because we have um, adoption documents from the larger Mesopotamian and ancient world. Uh, Um, But in as much as uh, we don't have marriage documents, we don't have divorce documents. We don't really have uh, adoption documents in the biblical text, probably because these things were just so common and everybody knew about them. You didn't need to have a law to explain them. But adoption, you could adopt, uh, we know from these from these other ancient texts, you could adopt a grown-up, you could adopt a small child, um, and you would want to have someone, you would want it, probably depending on the stage in life you were at when you were adopting, would dictate how old you wanted the person to be when you adopted them. So if you were elderly and had no one to take care of you, you would probably not want to adopt a small child because... <laughs> That's not going to be so practical. Um, We see um, references in the Code of Hammurabi to adopting someone in their amniotic fluid, so at the moment of birth. We see um, texts about what happens if you adopt someone, but then you have another child, biologically, who gets the inheritance. And texts like this make us think of um, echoes in the biblical text, like say with um, Sarah and Abraham and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac. So if you you know understand Ishmael to be Abraham's you know maybe adopted firstborn son, Sarah says, "May I be built up? May I have children through Hagar?" So maybe that's some sort of adoption language. Um, Maybe Ishmael was adopted as the firstborn child, but then Isaac comes along and now now what do we do? Um, And there's other places where we hear about children being placed on one's lap or one's knees. So maybe there's some sort of ritual um, significance um, to being placed on the area where birth happens as part of an adoption ritual. Um, then there are adoptions that happen for children who are unwanted. So we haven't talked about what happens if you have too many children or if you have children that you can't take care of. And there seems to be a social institution that was set up for that. Um, in the Roman world, we read laws about the paterfamilias getting, uh, it being able to decide who lives and who dies and infanticide and that sort of thing. But in the ancient world, we hear about children being thrown to the mouth of the dogs or thrown into the street, which makes it sound like a, a very disturbing image of small humans mm-hmm. being, you know, but this was code, the uh, code language. It was language that said, I am giving up my child. I am moving them from the realm of the known, from the realm of the house to the realm of the unknown, to the, to the other, to the area where do dogs hang out at the edge of town. Um, And then there's also, um, so, so at the edge of town would also maybe be your town dump. Uh, So I think there were areas where just like we have safe drop zones today, um, you know, at a fire station or at a hospital, I think there were, quote, safe drop zones where if you didn't want your child, you could give up your child. And then that would be a child who would be available for adoption to somebody, maybe without having to pay Mm -hmm. enormous adoption fees.
1: You have that in the Roman world, don't you? Sort of exposing children and, you know, on rubbish dumps and stuff. And sometimes they die, but sometimes somebody might come along and and take them as slaves or prostitutes or, you know, a variety of other things.
0: Other great life choices.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It it doesn't really end up great except that you don't die. But um, yeah. Yeah. It's not a good start in life, poor little minds. Yeah. Well,
0: exactly. I I, I wanted to ask about. The biblical story of of Moses' mother, you know, trying to save his life, but, you know, giving him up and putting him in the bulrushes, do we think that's, you know, an example of this type of behavior of like, well, hopefully someone picks him up or maybe he just floats away and that's the end of that?
2: (laughs) I think it is a story at its basic level of child abandonment, which we don't Mm -hmm. like to think about. Um, especially because it's Moses, you know. <laughs> um, but it, it was this idea that they couldn't keep their child, so what did they do? They tried to do their best. They didn't just kill the infant Moses as they were instructed, but put him in a little basket and, as you say, hoped for the best. Um, and, of course, it did wind up pretty great for Moses, but <laughs> doesn't wind up so great for everyone else. <laughs> and I,
1: I think in your research you found some really interesting stuff about twins haven't you um that people were sort of freaked out by twins and does this have a bearing on on Jacob and
2: Esau yeah twins um so again you have to like put yourself into the ancient mindset if you saw someone that looked exactly like someone else You might think you were seeing double or that there was a evil demonic twin. I mean, you think of like, I don't know if any people are uh, fans of the original Superman movies, but like the bizarro world um, and these sort of, like it was freaky, like you say. Um, So identical twins. I think it's
0: still a little freaky. I got (laughs) to say, every time I see twins, I'm like, what's happening here? This can't exist. So I, I can put myself in their minds. Very easily. Sorry to all the twins out there.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So identical twins were, um, yeah, I would say not looked upon favorably. There was something definitely weird about them. Again, apology to all the twins out there who are identical twins, but fraternal twins um, did not have the same stigma attached to them. Mm -hmm. And I think Mm. this is specifically why the biblical text gives us all of these descriptions about what Jacob and Esau looked like and are so it's, uh, you know, very clear to say they did not look alike. Esau is, you know, red and hairy. Jacob is smooth and ruddy as in (laughs) we have these twins, but they don't look, they're, they're fraternal twins. They're not freaky identical twins. Um, and therefore, we know their story can. We're going to tell you a story about these twins, um, and it could be a good story.
0: <laughs>
1: mm. oh, that's true because there is a lot of detail there, and the, and the, the biblical texts don't normally give us a huge amount of detail about
2: what people look like, do they? Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, um, we see we do see other um, references to twins um, in their I mean, it's not like every set of twins. Um, was, like freaky and didn't go anywhere. Uh, but we do see, like in Egypt, there's a, a pair of twins who become manicurists for the pharaoh. That was apparently a job. Um. <laughs> two hands? It's two incredible. hands, two twins. Two, two sets. <laughs> oh, that is really, that's even more freaky, actually,
1: the idea that you've got an identical person not caring for each hand. <laughs>
2: Yeah, you get the same work done, the exact same work.
0: <laughs> well, this has been awesome. Um Christine, before before we let you go, we we are asking another question of of all of our guests and and we're going to kind of put you on the spot. Uh but we have access to a time machine, as you know, and we've <laughs> we sent you the specs um in an email. I know they're very long and technical, but I'm sure you can handle it. When you get your chance in the in our biblical time machine, is do you know kind of where and when you would like to go if you wanted to you know travel back and actually see some of this stuff that that you research? Is there kind of a a particular place in time you think that you would want to travel?
2: Oh wow. That's such a tough question mm. <laughs> um. This might be a bit off the wall, but I'd like to go back to the year 701 BCE to the city of Lachish to see what children look like. I realize that might sound super specific and a bit random to some of the listeners, but here's the reason. There are very few artistic depictions of what children look like in biblical Israel. One of the best examples we have comes from something called the Lachish Reliefs, which show the Assyrian siege of the city Lachish Mm -hmm. and subsequent deportations of Judean families. I'd be very curious to see if the way the Assyrian artists show the children were accurate. Uh, for example, one of the infants on the relief appears to have an Egyptian-style side lock.
0: And sorry, a side lock, like I'm picturing sort of religious Jews today with the, the hair on the side. Is that is that what we're talking about, or is it something different?
2: Something, yeah, something different. Uh, yeah, I should clarify. Okay. Um, so imagine... All of uh, one's head being shaved with either a braid or a ponytail of sort over the ear. So a lo- not like the little curly payas like religious Jews wear,
1: mm. um,
2: but a-, a much longer piece of oh. hair um, and then the rest of the head being bald.
0: Oh wow, that's a that's a look. I'm well, gonna.
1: That's, that's very. <laughs> I'm,
2: gonna,
0: I'm gonna suggest that to my boys can do that, for picture you can day. Do
1: that. That's the one haircut I
0: can still do. Wow! For the listeners who don't know, I am a very bald man, but I do have hair around the sides. That's a great oh. idea. I'm gonna bring that back. Yeah. Although it doesn't sound very cool looking. But all right, so <laughs> you're gonna travel back on. in time to check out the haircuts of. K- I think that's worth it. That sounds great. We'll, we'll still we'll let you use the time machine for that for
1: that mm-hmm.
0: Awesome. Um, all right. Well, well, for now we're gonna we're gonna let Christine go. But thank you so much for coming and talking about childhood in the ancient world. We have not touched this at all, so it's it's really fascinating and important. And uh, thank you, Helen. Thank you to our listeners, and we'll see everybody on the next episode of Biblical Time Machine. Bye. Bye. If you're enjoying Biblical Time Machine, consider supporting us through a membership in our Time Travelers Club. For just $5 a month, you get access to all sorts of bonus content, and you can message us, and it's really fun, and you become our new best friends. Um, But really, you get to support what we do here, and we really appreciate it. Also, if you listen to us in Apple Podcasts, you can subscribe directly in the app and get the same perks. Thanks again.